Welcome to the Ethics and Compliance Library, where each episode we will take a deep dive into an ethics and compliance book, giving you the inside scoop through interviews with authors and industry leaders. I'm your host, Lauren Siegel. Today, we will analyze Intentional Integrity by Rob Chestnut. Before we hear from our guests, Rob Chestnut and Daryl Cyphers, let's get a lay of the land. Let's be honest. The last couple of decades in business have shown us that the actions of one or many can destroy a brand. Ethics has become a focus for organizations of all sizes to ensure their name or their CEO's name doesn't end up in the headlines. Rob Chestnut, former GC and CEO of Airbnb, describes how he built an ethics program focused on integrity at Airbnb. Building out the company's first code of conduct, challenging the way that ENC normally thinks about training and communication of said program, and walking readers through code moments that encourage a thoughtful approach to ethics and integrity in his book. There has to be an intentional focus on integrity within an ethics program, and more importantly, in the culture of an organization. Rob makes that very clear throughout the book. We look at organizations like Enron who had values and a code of conduct, and it is easy to recognize the value of focusing on situations that are more in the, quote, gray area of how we interact as humans. So how do we build programs that have integrity that go beyond just the words in a code of conduct? It requires the six C's, according to Rob. Those six C's, one, chief, two, customized code of ethics, three, communication of the code, four, consequences, five, clear reporting system, six, constant drumbeat. While this book gives insight and examples that go beyond these six C's, this is where we're going to spend our time during this introduction. Number one, chief, or buy-in from the top, otherwise known as tone at the top. Rob says this is the most critical element of the approach to integrity and ethics. He states, if your CEO doesn't really care about this, then you're wasting your time. His point is that if the people at the very top are operating with a different value set or not acting with integrity, the whole program loses value. No one trusts a program that the CEO doesn't even believe in or follow. Well, Rob, some of us may be thinking, What if I have middle management do this? Our CEO doesn't have time to make a statement or get in front of our employees. That's not enough. He points that if you delegate the training to a mid-level HR manager, you are suggesting that it just isn't very important. Rob and Daryl both talk about how they got buy-in from leadership and how leadership shows up for integrity and ethics in their interviews later on. C number two. Customized Code of Ethics. You have gotten buy-in from your CEO. Integrity and ethics are important. You must create a customized code to reflect the value of integrity and ethics that align to your business. The key word here being customized. It can be tempting when creating a program from scratch to find a basic code of conduct on the internet, policies, procedures, values, add in your company's branding and name, maybe add in a simple statement from the CEO at the front, likely something they just signed after your team wrote it. But Rob cautions against this. 
without your organization's language values normally needing to go beyond, quote, act with integrity, the organization's mission and your own words for situations, it won't land for your employees. Everything in the code has to be framed around the concept of the values you present and represent in the organization as a whole. To construct a code, Rob explains that is it, that it is essential to pull together a team of people from across the organization for different perspectives. The cross-functional buy-in you get as this team of people develops the fundamental principles reflecting the organization generates a code that represents your employees and meets them where they are. Three, communicating the code. Now you have created a custom code. You must communicate it. No, you cannot just print out the black and white PDF and post it around the office, especially in today's age where everyone is still working from home. No, you cannot post a cute graphic once a year as a poster that lists your values and have that act as your communication. No, you cannot send it out to your employees, ask them to attest to it, and then never engage with the topic. Rob implemented Airbnb's program in part by designing a, quote, interactive session for the new employee orientation program around 15 ethical situations. These situations are some, are some of the code moments Rob discusses throughout the book. These situations are not your massive fraud cases, but rather instances that employees are likely to face on a day-to-day -day basis in their everyday roles. Think handshakes, hugs, alcohol consumption. Intentional integrity is about having an open, honest conversation with people about the way that they should act in the workplace, says Rob. This topic is continued with the sixth C. Next, C number four, consequences. I'm not going to harp on this one, but there are two important elements of consequences. They both start with C as well, just for fun. Consequences must be clear and consistent. To some extent, they need to be published in your code or policies. And when we discuss consistency, that doesn't mean that every situation related to the same topic is the same. However, when those situations and elements are the same or similar, keeping consequences consistent builds trust in the program. At a high level, this C dictates the need for a fair process of investigation when someone reports an issue or an issue is realized. Penalties when violations of policies or the code did in fact occur and rules around how equal enforcement happens. The fifth C might be my favorite C to discuss, just given where I spend most of my time in my job. The fifth C is clear reporting system. This C is all about having instructions on the transparent system for people to report violations. At a minimum, organizations will normally have a phone number, sometimes leading to a specific individual or a voicemail, but hopefully to a call center for anonymity, and also the names of individuals to reach out to with concerns. As best practice, the more ways that you give your employees and people who interact with your organization the ability to report, the better. Some organizations I speak with say, well, we get a couple of cases a year, so I know we have a really strong culture. The industry argues it is exactly the opposite of that. Not receiving cases means one or both of two things. One, they exist and you're just not hearing about them or having them surface to you. And two, people don't trust the system that exists. 
I've seen organizations do this, add their reporting information at the bottom of pay stubs, on QR codes around the office, on company screensavers. There are so many ways to make sure your employees know where and how to report. Just having it listed on your code is not enough. One of the big business cases for having a strong ethical culture is that it protects your brand and builds trust with your customers, shareholders, etc. Clear reporting systems are the foundational way to build trust internally with your employees. Full stop. Last but not least, C number six, constant drumbeat. You've rolled out the code, you've communicated it, you have your systems in place to collect information on misconduct. Bang, bang, bang. You're done, right? No. Bang, bang, bang. The conversations around ethics and integrity can never stop. That drumbeat is key, and you must continually embed ethics and integrity into the culture of your organization. Ethics must be prioritized in every significant leadership conversation and decision. And then that ethical viewpoint must be shared with the organization. Teams must incorporate ethics and integrity into their performance evaluations. Think of this as the education piece of the six C's. Now, with that said, it's important that the training continues to emphasize the values of your organization. These can't be canned trainings that could be used for another organization. There's one communication method that Rob discusses that I want to double click into here, as I think it's a creative and easy to implement idea for those of you listening. On a regular cadence, whether monthly, quarterly, et cetera, create a short iPhone recorded video acting out a specific scenario. Two key things here, have leadership star in it and add humor. Rob says that many people have submitted topics for these videos. Leaders have asked to be in them. And the best part, they cost nothing and are all done in one take. These are sent out via email. They're a few minutes long and get a lot of engagement from employees. This keeps integrity top of mind with relevant topics, familiar faces, and a good laugh. This is how you keep, keep that constant drumbeat of ethics and integrity going. These six C's help to protect your organization when crisis occurs. When leadership considers the six C's and the importance of integrity, Evaluating challenging decisions is made easier because you have built trust and a framework to act within. Ethical missteps can be costly and damaging, so companies need a clear roadmap showing employees what they can and cannot do. These guidelines will help your people to do the right thing. Between the framework that Rob sets up, the countless research articles and studies that he references, and numerous code moments he presents to help shine light on the nuances of situations. The case for intentional integrity is clear. Next, we will dive into all of this and more with Rob Chestnut. Rob is a graduate of Harvard Law School and the University of Virginia. After spending 14 years with the U.S. Justice Department, he moved to California to become eBay's third attorney handling a wide variety of litigation, IP, and regulatory compliance matters for the company globally. A few years and a couple promotions into his time at eBay, he became senior vice president of a newly created trust and safety department. As the founder of head of eBay Trust and Safety, Rob was responsible for overseeing all site rules and policies for the eBay global community of over 150 million users and building the first e-commerce person-to-person platform trust and safety team. 
After leaving eBay in 2008, Rob spent time at LiveOps Inc. and then Chegg in 2010 as the general counsel and the company's first lawyer. He led the effort to take Chegg public in the fall of 2013. Rob joined Airbnb as general counsel in the spring of 2016, where he grew the legal team from 30 to over 150 legal professionals in the 20 offices around the world. After serving as the general counsel, Rob became the chief ethics officer and developed a popular interactive employee program, Integrity Belongs Here, to help drive ethics throughout the culture at the company. His book, Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution, is what brings him to the podcast today. He now serves as an advisor to Airbnb, along with several other internet marketplace startup businesses, including Uber, Upwork, Turo, and Poshmark. He lives in San Francisco, California, and spends his spare time playing basketball with his son and watching his daughter's theater performances. Well, thank you so much, Rob. I'm really excited to have you here today to talk to us about intentional integrity. I really enjoyed listening to and reading this book. You and I were just chatting about the fact that you actually were the one who did the recording of the audiobook, which I loved. And there's so much to dive into here. But I think the first place that I want to start is very general. Why did you write this? I, I, I never, th- by the way, thanks for having me on the, on, on the platform. I uh, I never intended to be an author. Uh, my wife, uh, actually, she's a venture capitalist, but she started in the publishing industry. So, you know, to to someone in the publishing industry, uh, everything looks like a book. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I, I started coming, I was coming home and talking to her about this unique program that we were developing at Airbnb around integrity and, and how the employees just you know, a bit to my surprise, really took to it. They loved it. And the more I started telling her about it, of course, she said, you've got to write a book about this. And Publish like, it. Yeah, I'm a general counsel. I've got a day job. I'm, I'm not an author. I'm not going to write a book. And she said, no, it's important that you share this so that companies beyond Airbnb can learn from this and understand. And I, I'm like, I'm still not writing the book, honey. And she said, I will get you a major publishing deal and I'll get you a writer to do it with you if you'll do this. I'm like, okay, honey, you give me You're a like major publishing deal. Yeah, you give me a major publishing deal. You give me a writer, I'll do the book. And that was a mistake because two months <laughs> later, I had a major publishing deal and I had a writer. <laughs> so, uh, but I'll tell you, as usual, my wife was right. You know, it was it, it was a wonderful learning journey to write the book. Uh, I, I gave every Monday night from 6 p.m. until uh, 9, 10 o'clock at night uh, to working with the writer. And then wow. reading what she would write on the weekends and then going back at it on Monday nights. Uh, I learned a ton during the process. You know, you think you write a book because you know something. Uh, in reality, uh, it becomes your own learning journey. So I had a blast doing it. And, you know, really, by the time I had finished writing the book, uh, I knew I wanted to devote even more time and energy to it because I think it's an important topic. That's amazing. I think there there's two things that I heard that I think are really powerful. One is that your wife is always right, which is an important <laughs> thing for everyone to know. But two, that there there's always more to learn in this space. No matter what you think you understand about a topic, especially in ethics and compliance, there's so much changing and so much growing that you can do. So um, lots, lots that we're going to be able to dive into there, but really awesome to hear that. Now, I think one of one of the things that I heard a lot of in the book was there was building a program from scratch 
And there was walking into some programs throughout your career that have had some kind of foundation that you were growing. And integrity isn't easy to create in a, in a culture, and it's also not easy to sow into a pre-existing culture. So I'm curious, can you talk to us a little bit about how you would guide people in either situation, whether they're starting from scratch or growing integrity into a pre-existing program? Yeah, you know, I think what's the most important thing of all is, you know, how does the, the CEO feel about the, about it, right? Don't at the top. And, right, because if, if your CEO doesn't care about it, doesn't think it's important, or, you know, even, you know, worst case scenario, thinks that it's a waste of, it's a waste of time and interferes with business, you've got a big problem. Uh, on the other hand, if your leader either hasn't thought about it much and is sort of open to it, or deeply believes that integrity needs to be a part of the culture and a part of the business, then you've got the base to be really successful, regardless of whether there was something set up or or, or not. I I like starting things from scratch. I I love the blank slate. I love the idea of being able to create because it really does force you to think about things from a fresh perspective. You know, you're not tied by what, what thinking has been done before. Um, And in, in this case with Airbnb, it really, uh, encouraged us to to think about things in a different way. And you know, again, they, going back to my my CEO, you know Brian Chesky. Brian Brian went uh, was never a, a business guy. Uh, he he didn't go to business school. He went to design school, and he always talked to us about designing, uh, you know, with the the end goal in mind and intentionally putting aside convention. So uh, you know, Brian basically said, "Go big." That, so that gave me a really a palette to paint on and set me on a journey of going out and, and learning and talking yeah. to different people. And, you know, uh, we got into the science of integrity. I spent some time with Dan Ariely, a behavioral scientist at Duke University. I went out and talked to Carlos Santana. Uh, you know, he, he, believe it or not, is, a, is big in integrity. Adam Silver at the NBA. Ah. So uh, I love the freedom of it. So whether you're taking something over or starting it from scratch, I think keeping in mind that um, you know, thinking outside of the box, painting your own, you know, your own box, I think is uh, a good way to approach the entire problem. Because I think a lot of times compliant, existing compliance programs are a little bit stayed. Yeah. You know, they're a little bit, everybody looks at it, oh, it's the legal department. I'm gonna have to check this box. Yep, the department of no. Yeah. And, and I really looked at it as something that's got to be vibrant and human and authentic. Uh, it can't feel like you're checking a box. You know, like one of the things that we did, um, it, it came from my kids. I learned from my kids in this. Uh, I was talking <laughs> to my kids about uh, the required video, the sexual harassment yeah. video, right? So hour long, two hours long required. Everybody complained. So horrible. Horrible, right? My daughter looked at me and said, you should do cup of tea. I'm like, what's cup of tea? Right? <laughs> and she said, when, I, when she was at a summer program at Carnegie Mellon University, they watched this stick figure cartoon sort of a thing that was nine minutes long that talked about um, romantic relationships like asking someone for a cup of tea. You wouldn't force someone to have a cup of tea. You ask and you're, and uh, she remembered this nine minute video and was describing it to me with passion a year after she saw it. And then she ran over to the computer and started showing it to me. And what really struck me about it was 
how great is it that someone that they were able to instill the, this into a young person so much that they'd remembered a year later with enthusiasm and make her want to go back and watch it again. Yeah. And one of the ways they did it was with, uh, they kept it brief and they kept it funny and they kept it authentic. Yeah. So I said, look, why don't we challenge ourselves to, to create something that people would want to look at and have fun with? So we actually started doing a monthly ethics video at Airbnb. And the and the uh, the equipment we used was my cell phone. That's amazing. And we, we agreed we would only spend an hour on it, but that it would have to be funny and it would have to include a, a leadership because tone has to come from the top. So let's Absolutely. put leaders in these videos. And the other thing we said is we're not going to require anybody to watch it because That's if you true. require people to watch it, it sends the message that it's a, a check the box. Absolutely. So we just started doing the videos and sending them out, and we would monitor how many people would actually look at the video just to see what the impact was. Within a few months, half the company was watching the videos voluntarily. We had- People can't had even get, people can't even get like required trainings That's to right. go through that quickly. That's right. And executives were coming to me saying, how can I appear on one of the videos? I people love it. Were writing it with suggestions for videos. And it was all because we took a lighthearted, fun approach to it that, I think resonated with people because it felt very human. Well, and it's uh, we, not the approach that compliance tends to take as well. Well, we had, we had people binge watching it as a team, uh, <laughs> binge watching all of them like a series. So you got to have some fun with it. I think you got to, you can't be afraid. You think outside the box a little bit, but, but be engaging, have some fun and be human and authentic. Get away from this notion that it's a check the box exercise. So I have a two-part question. Both were not on questions we previously discussed. So bear with me here. So one is that we talk about tone at the top and getting buy-in from, especially your CEO on the idea of integrity, right? But while in theory, everyone wants to act with integrity and everyone has integrity and the business cares about integrity. I think we need to talk about how you build the business case for integrity. That's important. And then secondarily, and I think you can feed this into to a one full answer. You come from a very rigid legal background, but yet you're talking about doing things out of the box. How, how do you encourage that in a culture that maybe has ethics and compliance professionals in a box? Yeah, I, I was a federal prosecutor. So some people think so. <laughs> people are stunned. Like, you went to law school? Right? <laughs> because I like to smile and I like to have fun. I found that... Um, you, you're a lot more effective uh, if you've got a smile on your face. Absolutely, you've got a little fun, and it's—I I think it's a tool that a lot of a lot of lawyers uh, should put in their toolkit and shouldn't be afraid to pull out. You know? Absolutely. Um, and so I—I'm I, a big believer in in that. Also, you know, uh, as far as a business case is concerned, look, the, the good news is that every time you go online, there's another story about another company and another executive that's done something terrible and the company's in hot water. You know, the, the, yeah. the uh, what was it today? CNN's president resigning yeah. over an inappropriate romantic relationship. Last yeah. week, it was the University of Michigan's president. Uh, you know, there's that one hits home for me. I'm a University of Michigan girl, yeah. so. <laughs> It's every, the point is it's everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. and it, it can ruin your career and ruin your brand. So it's an easy, for me, it's pretty easy to get a CEO's attention about this to sit down and say, look, we got to have an integrity talk because I don't want our company 
to be in these kind of headlines, right? And I don't want to see you get in trouble. So let's talk about what, you know, how we're going to act and what we're going to do here to make sure this doesn't happen to us. So um, there's that level. There's a second level though, and that is, I think, the world's changing. In the old days, people wanted companies just to make money, right? Go make your profit, turn, yeah, give me a great results. Today, I think employees uh, and the world want companies to actually do some good in the world. They want companies to have values, uh, to take a stand on something. And employees want this. Employees want more than a paycheck. They want to go to work every day at a place they're proud of. Yeah. We live in an age of conscious consumerism. Consumers want to do business with companies that resonate with their values. So what we're seeing is that if you can get integrity right, it can actually drive your business. Companies that do integrity well and that rate more highly in the, in the independent sort of ethics uh, world outperform the market and outperform their competitors, right? Yeah. They can attract employees more readily. Employees will stay longer. Employees will work harder. Customers become loyal ambassadors mm-hmm. about the brand. So in my mind, you need to get integrity right if you want to drive your business and be successful. Yeah, I... I think about the Patagonias of the world and, and the stances that they've taken. I know you talk about that in, in your book a little bit. And we talk a, a lot about on, like from my perspective, I talk a lot about how trust is that key differentiator, right? Building trust is so important. But all of these pieces, trust, ethics, integrity, without them, truly your business doesn't function anymore. And that's so different than what it used to be. I mean, I... I had a couple jobs out of college very quickly. And um, I, I love my dad. He's a very successful man. But he said to me, he said, you can't, you can't keep moving around just because you're not happy with how the, how the company handles things. And I said, I can, because that's, that's the company that I want to work for is a company that cares about those things. And I landed in a place where I, I now have that, right? But it isn't, it isn't unusual that you see people making these moves, especially in what is now the great resignation. People are leaving companies that aren't doing good things and don't stand by things to go to companies like Airbnb because they do stand for something. The, the world's changed. And, the, you know, it, when you mentioned your dad, I thought about my dad. You know, my dad went to work at a company and you know, he was thinking he's going to be there for 30 years and get a gold watch. Yep. That's the way the world operated. And this, what's happened today is that we're mobile. Employees can move quickly yeah. and they're not afraid. They're not afraid to speak up. If they see something going on inside of a company that they don't like, you know, back then they're not going to risk the gold watch. Today, they're going to be on Slack talking about it. They're going to be yeah. on the blind app or glass door talking about it. They're going to blog about it. Like, uh, you know, the Susan Fowler at Uber, yeah. her blog post uh, completely changed the, the trajectory of that company. Right. Or they're going to make photocopies of the documents and (laughs) go to Capitol Hill. That's the world we live in today. There are no more secrets. Expectations, you know, when it comes to integrity, I think have changed. And I think companies that understand this and get ahead of it by proactively creating an integrity program and really living by it, I think are going to be the more successful businesses. I agree. Um, I, I think about the, the, the nomenclature of, these programs too, right? You just said an integrity program. A lot of organizations call it their legal department or their compliance department, or maybe ethics and compliance, but very rarely do you have an integrity department or a standalone ethics department. 
Can you talk to me about how you feel that that makes a difference and how that affects the impact that it has on the organization saying they stand for something? Sure. I mean, I was very intentional about the use of the word integrity. Yeah. Uh, I think it matters. It's branding. Uh, you know, the words, the word compliance has too, for too long been associated with the lawyers in the legal department. And I hate to break it to those of you in the <laughs> audience who are lawyers, but people don't want to go to legal, right? <laughs> they don't want to go to HR because they don't want to be a whistleblower. You know, they, yeah. they, they want to care. They want to speak up, but you've got to welcome it. It's up to you as a company to create an environment where that becomes the norm. It isn't the legal, why, of all places, with all the lawyer jokes that we hear, of all the groups to own integrity, right? Why the legal department? <laughs> you know, look, legal can help uh, start it, drive it, but it's something that has to be owned broadly, I think, uh, within a company. Uh, and, and you've got to create language that people are going to be comfortable with. And we, we found the word integrity uh, it was, was something that people were more comfortable with and yeah. didn't feel as legalese. No. And, and in addition to it, not feeling legalese, I think it's a value that everyone can get behind, right? Saying I have, I have a strong moral compass or I have a good ethical mindset or whatever it is, right? That it feels very up in the air in some cases, whereas integrity is is a value that people tend to understand. And when you ask them to rank values, integrity is very often one of the top values that people choose, which I think is really powerful as well. It is. People, people want, everybody wants to think that they've got integrity. We all think we've got integrity. Yeah. It's hard though. It's, it's, um, it can often be very gray. Yeah. Uh, it's a muscle you have to continuously flex in order yeah. to keep it. It resonates in the heart though, I think. Yeah. It was something that, you know, uh, I was raised as a kid, you know, with my mom uh, to, to, to have integrity. So it's a powerful concept. Absolutely. In the last podcast episode, um, I, I explored a book called No Rules Rules, which is all about Netflix's culture. Um, talk about another company that's grown really rapidly and done some really crazy things in the industry, right? Um, most ethics and compliance leaders or integrity leaders uh, don't love the idea of not having policies. Um, yet Netflix has talked about all over the place that they're a company that doesn't function off of policies, but rather that they've created a culture where they don't need it. How do you feel policies and procedures fit into the way you view a strong integrity-driven culture? Yeah, I deeply respect what Netflix does. I think having a strong culture is a lot more effective than having a lot of policies. Yeah. Because policies, if people don't read the policies and if leaders don't live the policies, then it doesn't matter how good the policy is. Uh, in fact, you just look a little, you look more hypocritical, <laughs> right? So um, you know, having leaders that talk uh, and walk, you know, talk about integrity and walk the walk and have a culture where that's, where, where bad behavior isn't isn't the not only is it not the norm it's not the way things are done is to me a really powerful uh, now would i go all the way to say we don't need any rules at all we don't need any policies we just are going to have a no rules rules culture no i'm not that comfortable what i prefer is a culture that does have rules and policies but a, cul a culture that understands that that's not enough yeah. just having them and having somebody check a box saying that they've read it doesn't do you any good. What's really powerful is when you can take reasonable rules and layer them 
with a culture of authentic human behavior where not only is it a policy, it's really the way people live inside the company. It's the way leaders act. That integrity, I like to say, is, is actually contagious. And, and leaders, are, leaders are the primary carriers. So if leaders act a particular way, um, people are going to naturally follow that uh, in that environment. So they're, they're very, uh, leaders are, are the thermostat for integrity in that sense. Oh, I love right? that. Uh, a, a thermometer takes the temperature of a room, but a thermostat actually sets the dial. So if you have a leader that comes into a meeting and says, I don't care how you get it done, we're gonna ha we have to hit this number. The, there, this has to be delivered by this no matter what. Well, that gives people in, in, in the, the company almost ethical permission to do some things that are on yeah. the edge in order to meet the leader's demands. Because the leaders are basically saying they don't care how you get it done. On the other hand, you know, take somebody like Ben Horowitz. You know, when I was talking to Ben Horowitz as part of you know, working on the book, Ben, when he was a CEO, every quarter he would sit down with the CFO of his company with the numbers right in front of him. And he would always, as part of his regular routine, look at the CFO and say, is there anything in these numbers that makes you uncomfortable? Is there anything in here that you were pressured to do? Anything here that might mislead other people? Because Ben said, look, we might miss a number. Our stock price might go down, but we're not going to go to jail. That's not the way that we're going to operate here. So when you have a CEO that uses that kind of language, it creates a different temperature inside the company. And as a result, people are going to act differently. Yeah, I, I think one of the key pieces of thinking about an integrity, an ethics, a compliance program, whatever, whatever you call it, is that you're talking about people. People, people can't be controlled. You can't totally anticipate behavior, but you can prep people for what they may experience. There, there are so many surveys out there that it's, it's some crazy number, like 70, 80, 90% of, of employees will experience some kind of misconduct every year right? The numbers are insanely high. It's not even every year. I think it's like on a regular <laughs> basis, right? But if I'm experiencing those things and I haven't been given the toolkit to understand how to handle it and where to go, then that check the box isn't cutting it, right? That check the box is, is just saying, well, if you experience it, you got to do something. Well, I don't know how to experience it, Right? And I think that's what's so powerful about having those values layered on top of what you're talking about as those, those basis of, of rules and regulations. I talk to a lot of companies, Lauren. I work with companies on culture and integrity. Uh, I love it when I talk to a company and they'll say, well, well, Rob, I don't really think we've got a problem. We've got a hotline and we hardly ever get any complaints. <laughs> it's my favorite. And my response is, that's the first sign of a problem. Yes. Because, uh, look, there are ethical challenges every day that come up in a company. And the question is, do people recognize them as ethical challenges? Are they comfortable raising their hand and saying, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. So the fact that you've got a hotline buried three or four links deep in your corporate internet oh. isn't good enough because again, nobody wants to go to legal. Nobody wants to go to HR, make it hard, make it something that's not part of the culture and people just won't do it. Yeah. But if you create an environment where people are comfortable raising their hand and saying, hey, this doesn't look right to me. What do you think? Right. That's I think the, the that's a real compliance program. Right. Yeah. It, it's it's it goes beyond checking a box. 
it's recognizing that you've got you've got your hand on that thermostat and you've got to create the temperature and put it in just the right place. Yeah, it's it's not that the issues aren't there, it's that you're not hearing them, which is which is even more scary for it's sure. It's worse. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so you you've done this in a couple of different companies, you've talked to a lot of companies about how to do this. What's been the hardest thing you've had to overcome as an ethics integrity legal professional during your career? You know, I think it's the old-fashioned notion that somehow there's uh, somehow there, ethics and business are mutually exclusive terms, right? This idea that, um, well, you know, uh, ethics stuff's nice, but but business is this is business, <laughs> right? Or business is business. Yeah. And I, I think the it comes from Milton Friedman. It comes from this idea that businesses only have one, uh, you know, one thing to worry about. That's the bottom line. And, and I, I think that's been really damaging from an ethical perspective yeah. is it suggests that focusing on the shareholder is the only thing that matters ethically. And we, we've seen a rejection of it now. I think we've seen um, now business you know, organization after organization stepping up and saying, no, we don't want to operate that anymore, uh, operate that way anymore. We think having stakeholder principles is a lot more intelligent and a lot better for the world. Uh, but look, all of the leaders, almost every leader of a major company today went to business school in that old world. Yes. Right. So what we need is we need to get the new generation of business leaders who are going into business thinking differently, as opposed to having people who have been in business for 30 years, having to change the way that their mind works and their mindset. So I think that's the big challenge. Yeah. I mean, we talk about a blank slate with a program. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, Okay, one last question for you. Um, and this is the most broad of them all. What do you want readers and listeners to know or to think about that you didn't cover in the book or didn't cover in today's interview? Wow, the, the book is so comprehensive, Lauren. <laughs> I know, truly, there's so right. much good in there. Uh, but you know what, the, um, I've, I've worked on this concept that I call the number on the wall. And a lot of companies get in trouble when um, they, they focus on a metric to the and and they put it up on the wall. They they make it a rallying cry. And we well, I'll give you this, give you the example of Airbnb. At one point in the business, we had a goal of 200 million nights. I think it was right. Every meeting you went to, right, 200 million nights was the number on the wall. That was what we were all working to try to get for the year. And you know that sounds that sounds perfectly reasonable, right? Yeah. Of course you want 200 million nights. And then one day I was on the website and I noticed. Oh, this host looks really bad. This host has got like terrible reviews. They're like, you know, out of, you know, on, on a scale of one to five, they're like 3.5, which is not very good. Yeah. And here's another host that doesn't look really good. And then here's another host. What are we doing with these hosts that are on the platform that are not providing a good guest experience? Clearly yeah. the places aren't, they, they aren't clean. They're not welcoming to the guest. Um, we got to do something about it. So I go over to the team that I know is supposed to be working on this. Hey folks, what are we doing with these hosts? We, I, I'm noticing some hosts on the site that I, I wouldn't be proud of. Uh, these people are going to hurt our business because they're going to drive away guests. Uh, we should be getting rid of them. And the I'll never forget the response I got. They looked up, they looked at me and said, Rob, I, I know you're right, but we need to hit 200 million nights. And even a bad night is still a night. Yeah. And so when you've got that kind of thinking, that's the sort of thing that will kill your business in the long run. And that's when you realize that You've got to be really careful about the number you put on the wall. Mm -hmm. I, I like to say that companies um, 
a lot of times I, I learned when I was younger, I was told, well, companies measure what they do. Hmm. In reality, I find that companies do what they measure. That Ooh, is, I love that. Start me- when your company starts measuring something and they start putting it up on the wall, everybody races toward it. Yep. Even if the way that they're racing toward it isn't healthy or right and isn't consistent with the way you'd want to operate. Yeah. So I, I think one thing I'd encourage people to think about when you're, when you're running a business, um, it's one thing to have a great, uh, hairy, audacious goal, a big number you're going to put on the wall, right? But that sort of thing can, can lead you to trouble. That's what happened to Wells Fargo. When, oh. uh, they, they, everybody in the room had, they had to hit a certain sales target. You yeah. don't hit the sales target, you'll be working at McDonald's next week, they were told. Mm-hmm. Put that big goal out there and push people really hard. You might not like how they try to hit it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I would agree with your wife. This, this is definitely a book that, need to be re- that needed to be written. And I hope that she pushes you to write another one. I think there's a lot more <laughs> to explore in this space. Um, I, I'm really excited to continue diving into what integrity looks like in the culture that I work in, in the culture of the companies that I work with. And um, there's a lot of power in the words that, that you've put into this book. So thank you so, so much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. The book's called Intentional Integrity, available at stores everywhere. And if people are interested in the subject, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, yes. I do a post about integrity uh, multiple times a week. People are welcome to pop in. Uh, connect with me there, continue the conversation. Yeah, uh, there's some great content there. I've been I've been following Rob's stuff for quite a while. So um, definitely recommend. And the audiobook, like I said, is his voice. So if you're a slow reader like me and need a little bit of both, um, go listen to that. I think you get a it's lot of value out of right. hearing it. Yeah, <laughs> thank well, you, thank you so much, it. Rob. Daryl is the director of legal compliance for Boston-based startup Clavio. He's been fortunate enough to build integrity controls at companies such as Symantec, Juniper Networks, Snap, and Google. Daryl studied at Arizona State University, and he resides in the Southern California area. Hello, Daryl. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited to chat with you. Before we jump into the nitty gritty, the great questions that we're here to talk about, I would love to just learn a little bit about what you do at Clavio. Yeah, Lauren, thanks for, for having me. Um, so at Clavio, I serve as the director of legal compliance. But in actuality, being at a startup, right, you do everything. <laughs> your, your title is not really reflective of what you do. Um, <laughs> core aspects of, of my job are to kind of set up the company code of conduct, um, anti-bribery, uh, corruption policies, whistleblower hotlines, whistleblower policies, conflict of interest policies, and then trainings for all of those policies. And then probably- Do everything. everything, (laughs) Right? Uh, A heavily amount of kind of setting up controls for third-party due diligence for our partners, customers, and suppliers. Um, You know, your your standard uh, kind of uh, seven elements of compliance type things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I've never heard of an ethics and compliance officer who only does ethics and compliance and can define that in one role. So that makes a lot of sense. And especially in the startup world, that means there's a lot of extra work to do. Um, so let's get into integrity. So intentional integrity, obviously the name of the book, but also integrity in and of itself, I think, means a lot of things to a lot of people, but it's something that we all want. Can you talk to me a little bit about what 
being intentional about integrity means to you and or means to Clavia. Yeah, sure. So we recently uh, released our, our first company code of conduct a few weeks Congrats. ago. Congrats. And thank you. And, and one of the ways that we released it was we had a company all hands. We have all of our executives, everyone that reports to CEO, including the CEO and the co-founder, uh, talk about what integrity means to them from their lens in their jobs. So you had our head, our chief financial officer talking about what integrity means to her in finance and accounting and controls. You had our chief product officer talking about what it means for design, integrity there. We had um, you know, our chief marketing officer, Caddy, talking about what integrity means to her and her, she gave childhood stories. And then we had our chief legal officer talking about what integrity means to him. And then we had our CEO and co-founder bring it home on what it means to them. And, and the core thing that we saw is that integrity meant something different to everyone. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it was, it's what unites us as a company, right? And so when we talk about intentional te- integrity at Clavio, we mean not taking the shortcuts like doing the things that are gonna make sure that the product is the best, making sure that the controls are the tightest if we have the opportunity and that we do it in all aspects, not just when our managers are looking, not just when the press is looking, but at all times. It doesn't take a New York Times article or a DOJ investigation to launch a compliance program. You do it immediately, right? Start from the beginning. And it's actually, it's interesting because you know, we had this great talk in the all hands and one of the questions that came in uh, from the employees was, well, what's going on? Did something go wrong? Yeah, why are we talking about why this? Why are we talking about this? And, and pretty much what we conveyed to them was, no, we're just trying to set the foundation. This is who we want to be, a company based on integrity, yeah. from the platform, how we deal with data, to how we deal with each other in everyday uh, conversations. That's awesome. You, you mentioned that all of leadership was there and doing this. One of the things that we talk about is tone at the top. And you mentioned building a program really from scratch. You've come from programs that you worked in, but didn't build from scratch. So you've had a little bit of both of those. When you're building a program from scratch and you are trying to build tone at the top, getting that buy-in, Talk to us a little bit about how you think about doing that and being successful in that, because it's not an easy thing to do. Well, I think, you know, the most important thing, right, is to communicate your value offer, right, when you're trying to get buy-in and go in with a very approachable and humble mentality, right? If I go in and say, hey, DOJ said, you got to do this, 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 and this, and they're going to be like, look, dude, I'm just going to take the risk. Leave me alone. Go <laughs> Like, hey, you know, there's some things that we need to accomplish. And I think we can partner with you to empower you guys to do things um, within the law, but at a very high level. You know, going in there with an open ear on understanding what their struggles are to comprehend some of their obligations, I think is super important. And what we get wrong sometimes is we just point the law at them. We, oh, you have to do this and you have to do that. And, and that may be true. But you're not building a partnership. You are now almost acting like a dictator, right? You have to do this. No one likes that, right? So if you go in there and say, hey, let, let's talk about uh, you know, what we have to do in regards to a due diligence protocol. We need to make sure that we control 
you know, the vendors that get into our environment, the partners that we're partnering with. We want to make sure that reputationally they're not going to bring harm to the organization. And here are some ways we can do it. Now, we're not trying to make this decision for you, but what we can do is provide you with as much information as possible. And we can make sure you're not engaging with customers that are on ban sanction lists. Right? That's a different conversation when it's like, okay, I, I, I can hear you. Let's have a conversation about this versus, dude, you can't do business with them. Nope, can't do it. it so, so I think when we're trying to engage with Tone from the top, it's always important right, that when you're introducing your program and what you're trying to be, that you, become, you go in there approachable. Right? And, and that will give you a, a really good head start. Right? Five, the first program I built out was I was working in sales and marketing operations. And, and my job was to create a program that kind of connected the gaps that were existing between the legal compliance function and the sales organization. Because the legal compliance function wanted to just shut everything down. And <laughs> the sales function was like, it's the wild, wild west. Let's go have <laughs> And so it was my job to create certain programs and initiatives that would bridge that gap so that they sales can understand where legal was coming from and legal can understand the struggle of sales to comply, right? And the only way you can accomplish something like that is if you have buy-in from the executives. And this all starts with explaining it how I just explained it. Hey, there's a disconnect here. Let's try to figure out some ways that's not taking away from what you from the things you guys need to do, but will empower this relationship to be stronger. Yeah, that partnership is key. I think one of the things that is really challenging is that ethics and compliance has been viewed as this this bad guy, the department of no, they are just standing there to get in your way and make things harder. And that's not the case. And it's it's hard to feel like your ethics and compliance team is able to support the business when they haven't built out those partnerships, when they haven't gotten the support. So some companies have a harder time doing this because they they have these pre-established values and cultures. They're companies that have been around forever and they they say they value integrity, right? But is that actually showing up? You've worked at companies that, that have had programs for a little while as compared to companies where you're building it from scratch. But when when you think about those programs, how would you help a practitioner who is coming into a program that has a pre-existing culture that maybe feels like compliance is a roadblocker and not a partner? Well, there's there's two, I think there's two answers to that question, right? The first, the first thing is acknowledging that, you know, that programs have evolved or they should have evolved. The guidance from the DOJ we would hope. has evolved over the last few years. Like, last three, five years, things have changed significantly. And I say that because like five years ago, right? Maybe, maybe, yeah, five five years ago, five, six, seven years ago, it was enough for programs to say, box. 98% of the people took the code of conduct training. Boom, we're good. Let's report that to the board of directors. But now we understand that that's not enough. Okay, so your employees took the code of conduct, but how has that affected behavior? How do you know that it's effective? Right. What metrics are you using to track effectiveness of the training that you're getting of the code of conduct? Have you seen trends of when you released your code of conduct training? Is there an increase in uh, allegations? Is there a decrease? Are you seeing things consistent over time? These are questions that we weren't asking ourselves necessarily yeah. five years ago. And so I think acknowledging the fact that, you know, it's 
it's things have changed and we probably need to change our program is, is one. And that's for like longer, it's more established programs, which I've, I've been in and I understand uh, that they get challenged, but it's just, it is what it is. That's kind of where things are moving. And then the second part of your question in regards to, you know, how do you change the perception of your program? So one of the things that we did at one of the companies that I worked with is we would have um, uh, uh, anti-corruption training for all our sales and our partnership employees. And so it's like they would have their first week of onboarding and then there'd be like the second set, uh, week of training specifically for salespeople on how to use Salesforce and all these kind of things. But we slipped in ourselves for 30 minutes and we do anti-corruption training. And, and what we would do is we would make ourselves seem super approachable, right? So we would talk about things like um, the, 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 the meal limit, right? So we'd say, you know, you know, we suggest that, we, you know, as compliance people that the meal limit should be, you know, $50 a person, but, yeah. you know, our CEO wanted to go 250. So you guys can go out and be ballers, right? Yeah. And we just try to bring some, some humor into it. Uh, but then we talk about government officials and we say, Hey, you know, when it comes to government officials, your limit is, is $25 per person. And, and it sometimes it shouldn't even be that. Um, and we're not saying that you need to take them to McDonald's, but we are saying that you need to kind of acknowledge us and reach out to us before you take a government official out to a dinner or give them any type of pleasantries, right? So we just try to incorporate humor and uh, show our personality in there. And, you know, we talk about kind of individual liability from the FCPA perspective and UK bribery, but then we say at the end of the training that we hope we never see any of you guys again. Yeah. <laughs> I hope to never see you guys again, right? And I would bring some joy to them and, and they say, okay, this, this guy, these guys are cool. And then I think another important thing is like, there's sometimes where like at a company I was working with, there was the disclosures that come in and, you know, certain folks at certain levels are getting invited to these like lavish events and whatnot. And, yeah. and we know that they're having a renewal of a certain technology right around the corner. Uh -huh. Um, and they they kind of said, "Hey, can we go?" Like we know, like absolutely no. This is a no. Like we just don't want to open up this door. But we wouldn't say that initially, right? So what we do is we sit back, like, okay, well, we need to have some internal discussions or talk to you know the director of your department or VP of your department. We we'll get back to you, right? And we're in their eyes, you know, they're we're considering it, and they have been heard. But really, we already know it's a no. But we just give the perception that we're considering yeah. so that in the future they don't hide it from us you know they think well they considered it last time maybe they yeah. consider this one differently the next time and so it's all about being strategic about how you respond with the no because sometimes we do have to say no yeah. uh, but how you communicate it is a game changer because the number one thing that i believe we want as compliance people is transparency into what's going on we don't have that it's going to be very hard for us to be successful yeah we i think the example around disclosures is a really good one that if you look at your disclosures that are coming in and you're rejecting everything that comes in while there may be valid reasons for that what does that say to your employees are they going to actually come to you if they know that everything gets rejected Right, which it's so important then to have those mechanisms in place to be able to understand what's happening there or when you don't have cases that it's not a good thing, right? That you need that transparency. Um, I 
I, one of the things that you, that you mentioned was around how you get in front of the business, right? So you show up and you do a training. Well, as we know, the world looks very different now than it did a couple of years ago. Getting in front of people now means on Zoom boxes. Maybe some people are back in person. How, how does the environment of ethics and compliance, the environment of business today, change the way that you think about, quote, getting in front of people? Well, I think, you know, one thing I never had trouble with was getting on people's calendar. I mean, people see like legal complaints. They're like, oh crap, I got to accept this. <laughs> They're like, I got it. What's wrong? What did I do wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't think that's, you know, ever an issue, but I do think it's how do you maximize your time? Yeah. How, and, and I think that the biggest thing there is, you know, you know, you, when you get in, in front of, you know, your CEO, right? When you get in front of an SVP, that you show the value that you have for their team. And, and, and oftentimes what we talk about is how we're empowering you to operate at your best because you have the information that you need. You know, you, now you're not operating blindly, blindly. Now you know that if you engage with this partner, here's the risk, right? Now you know that everybody on your target list is not on a sanction list mm-hmm. and their parent companies are not on a sanction list. Right. These are value offerings that, that we have. And I say, look, this is at no expense to you. I'm here. I'll just provide me with the list of who you're trying to engage with. And I'll conduct a third party due diligence. And I'll let you know all the information you need to make the best decision. It's your call in some cases. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not in, not in all cases, but in some. You you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to I want to hone in on it as a specific point. How, how does integrity tie into culture and why is why are both of them important to success of a company? It's, it's everything, right? So when we talk about integrity, when we talk about values of an organization, they are the fundamental pillars of the culture that you're trying to develop. So you, there's a case where you come into an organization that's well-established that already has a culture. And then there's a case where you're going into a startup and you're developing culture. So I've had the luxury of, of experiencing both. You know, when you're at a startup and you're setting that, you know, foundation of your values and your culture, you know, people ops oftentimes does all these great things. They come up with benefits and they come with all these fun things so that employees have a great time at their organization and build up morale, right? And, and, and values tend to fall within the people ops organization. The compliance department is, I believe, the protector of those values, the protectors of culture. We're the ones that are looking at, you know, investigation data. We're the ones that are looking at the whistleblower hotline. We're the ones that seeing, you know, you know, how many folks are are kind of harassing individuals and retaliation, all those things. And we can see how we can adjust our approach to trainings and policies to make sure that we get back on the right track. So, so it's our goal, like at startups, to make sure that all the great atmospheres that are being created, that it's protected. And then when you're at a company that's more established, right, it's sometimes it's about you, your, your group bending the curve. And getting back to your core core values, and sometimes reestablishing values. You know, at, at at Google, they had values that were very simplistic. It was respect the user, respect the opportunity, 
and respect each other. Yeah, SNAP was even more simple. It was uh, be, uh, be kind, be smart, be creative, right? At Clavio, we have like these very in-depth seven values or sentences as long and everything like that. And so as compliance professionals, how do we make sure that those are true to our organization? There's data that would tell us this, right? And looking at that data over time, making sure that we provide that data to executives, the board of directors, so they can understand and provide guidance on when we need to turn the ship. But that's, I, in my in my role, I feel like that's my job, protect the values, protect the culture that's being built. Yeah, culture, the idea of who owns culture is a challenging one. I love the idea of protecting culture and it being the responsibility of ethics and compliance there. I think that was a great way to put it. You mentioned data, you mentioned monitoring number of cases. How do you measure integrity? How do you monitor it? How do you do something with it other than say it exists? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of you know ways that you can look at at data and analytics and see if there's patterns of behavior, right? If there are an increase in investigations in a certain region in regards to uh, policy violations, like, or do we have a bunch of you know uh, hardware privacy you know violations here in Europe? Right? Or do we have uh, consistently a, a, a retaliation and in her, in harassment culture in engineering, right? Uh, you can kind of really section things down and, and look at a pattern of behavior, but it, it requires a strong partnership with HR compliance and, and, yeah. and their willingness to work with you. So I think that's a, that's a strong way. But, but then it's also about kind of keeping your ear to the floor, right? And, and engaging with employees, hearing their thoughts in all, all hands meetings and their questions and filling with the rough, engaging with uh, middle level management, find out what they're hearing and concerns that they're having around managing and staff. And then just routinely giving folks the power that they need to be successful. So manager training, employee training, regular training on you know integrity, kindness, respect for others, code training, things like that. Um, and then slip in kind of little reminders every now and then. Have an integrity week where you highlight the importance of integrity. Um, do that at every kind of organization that I've been at. We've always had like an integrity week. And so it's it's not like a once a year type thing, but you try to bring integrity and, <clears throat> and compliance into folks' um, lives and, and work lives on a quarterly basis. Yeah, you guys heard it here first. You can't do compliance only once a year. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of it's it's one of the big things that's always talked about is how do you engage people year round? It's not just the once a year trainings and policies, but it's it's a lot more than that. And the data that you collect, not just from that, but those conversations, which brings me to something else. We spoke about tone at the top at the beginning. Mood at the middle, the, the conversations with management, tone at the top is key to driving integrity and driving culture, but middle management is as well. And in a lot of cases, organizations will find those, those people to be the most valuable because they actually are interacting with both levels in a very different way. And I think there's a, a really intentional way to engage middle management in ethics and compliance and use them 
to help your program. So a lot of organizations will, will create a uh, compliance committee or create uh, a uh, stewardship program, whatever it is, right? So how do you think about programs like that and the people that it engages? Is that something that you look to create in programs that you're building up? We've had committees at more um, well-established, like the first one of the first companies I, I worked at, Symantec. You know, I was a, a well-established organization, 20,000 plus employees, and we had committees there because we were more global company. You know, at some of the smaller tech companies, we we hadn't got around yet to kind of middle-level management committees, but we did understand the power of middle-level management, right? So um, no matter how great your people operations team is, <laughs> no matter how great your integrity and compliance team is, our ethics and compliance team is, if you have a jacked up manager, it's going to change your experience at your organization and how you feel on it and how you act within that organization. And so what we do is we call out in our code of conduct that we have different expectations of managers than of employee. And then we talk them through that and we train them on that, right? And we let them know the power that resides within them. Because oftentimes managers will think that they just go about their business not truly understanding the impact that they're having for the individual contributor. So we highlight it. Like, look, we can do all these great things about integrity. We can give all these great benefits. But if you're not actively listening to your, your, in your, your reports, if you're not hearing their concerns, if you're not addressing their concerns and following up with them, then it's going to change the environment of the organization and the culture. And we're going to have a, a really tough time. So we lean on managers oftentimes to communicate some integrity messages that we have to them. Like, hey, let's have, you know, this, this team meeting, you know, once a quarter on integrity and how we're doing our jobs and how we can do it in a better way. And do we think that our controls are up to par? Do we think that we're talking to each other with kindness? Do we think that, you know, we have a good team around? Have those conversations on a regular basis as your team and individually with your employees because we can't do it alone. Right. Like we, we there's there's no way that we can play Superman. It's a it's a collective effort. And that, that goes back to why I always feel like it's important to have all the executives talk about integrity, because it, it an employee's experience is not just the integrity compliance program or the people. Yeah. It's a collective of the organization. So we talked a little bit about building partnerships with the business, about tone at the top how we think about training and engaging employees, how, how we think about building a culture and who owns and protects culture. There are a lot of good practical tips within that, but I'm curious, are there any other practical tips that you could share with practitioners who are listening about how you've operationalized intentional integrity or tone at the top at organizations you worked at? Yeah, I mean, just don't accept the status quo, right? It's from vendors, from your, your colleagues, uh, from input individual con, uh, contributors, expect greatness, right? And that's, that's, that's my thing. And like, you know, whatever vendors that I, I use and I see their controls and, and I see that I need something more, I tell them, hey, like, this is great. This is gonna solve this, but it's not gonna solve this and, and we need to solve this. So you know, when can we have this solved, 
right? Same with colleagues, like, okay, this is great. We have this here, we have this here, but we need to kind of take this to the next level. How can we add, you know, some controls here so, so nothing slips through the cracks, right? So I'm just not accepting the, this is industry standard, right? But taking mm-hmm. things to the next level, right? I think that's intentional integrity, right? There's often times when we bring on technologies um, for procurement, or we bring on technologies for other parts of the business that have controls that help compliance. And we don't utilize them because yeah. no one turns them on. It's like, well, let's be intentional about it. Even if this is not a struggle for our company now, why not be intentional, get in front of any type of problems? Let's be, let's, let's utilize these controls, right? That's in my opinion, intentional integrity. It's not waiting until something goes wrong, but just practicing that behavior starting starting now. Yeah. Integrity is a muscle that you have to continue working. Otherwise it, it doesn't function. And so that's a really great way to not, None of my mus- muscles function right now. So <laughs> that's a great well, reminder that I need to go to the gym. Thanks. Oh, I love that. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of really incredible things at your program. You have definitely a lot of work ahead of you as do all ethics and compliance leaders. But it was wonderful to hear from you today and get your perspective. Super helpful. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Lauren, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you again to Rob Chestnut and Daryl Cyphers for their time and expertise presented in today's episode on intentional integrity. As mentioned briefly in previous interviews and episodes, we will continue the conversation in the Converge community, converge.conversant.com. Over the next few months, I will be polling the audience to determine what book I will feature in the next episode. Episode seven will be released sometime in late May. And once we decide on a book, I will Hope you consider reading along with me and sending in questions for me to ask the interviewees during the next episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for leading. And as always, have a wonderful day.